Hi, I'm Sylvain Bertelot, and you're listening to On One Condition, a podcast to raise awareness about health conditions by listening to people who live them every day. Today, my guest is Levi Peterson. We're going to talk about three conditions, uh, Bechet's syndrome, IIH, which I will let Levi pronounce fully, uh, and Parkinson's disease. Hi, Levi. Uh, very nice to meet you. Thank you for joining the podcast. It's so wonderful to meet you too. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, so as everyone who listens to the podcast knows, I love starting with a song. Uh, so would you like to tell us what song you've chosen and why? So this song is Celestial by Ed Sheeran, which I feel like people are like, I would not, I'm so surprised that Levi would pick this, but uh, believe it or not, it's actually the theme song from the most recent Pokemon game. And uh, my, my boyfriend played it to completion with me and uh, we both were very much crying by the end of the game because of the storyline. So uh, this was the song that came on and we were both absolutely, uh, as the young ones say, crying in the club. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Why do people, what would people think that it's a weird choice for you? I think they would expect me to, uh, you know, pick Ghost or AFI probably, which I almost did. I was really close to picking a ghost song, but I was like, ah, oh, you know, I, I don't think the parents would appreciate that one. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I get that. I get that. Uh, so we're talking about three different conditions, which unfortunately affect you. Um, I, I will let you decide which condition to start with uh, based on how it makes sense for you. Yeah, of course. Um, we can definitely start with IIH, which is idiopathic intracranial hypertension. It is a mouthful. I do not blame you for not wanting to pronounce that one. <laughs> I don't even like doing it. But uh, essentially, it's where there is an overproduction of CSF that is pressing on my brain. Um, this is, for me, due to stenosis and my transverse sinus that they tried to um, stent and restore the flow. But uh, unfortunately, there was just so much pressure that they were unable to do so. Okay. And um, it can cause you to go blind, cause strokes. Um, it was very much used to be thought that it was a benign and self-limiting condition that only affected women of childbearing age who are obese. But mm -hmm. uh, in recent years, they're starting to get further away from that stigma, thankfully, since it's very much known that this is not a disease that discriminates. This can okay. affect anyone at any age, any weight, at any time. And, um, you know, it, it, it was a lot more dangerous than we had expected. It also, at the time I was diagnosed, went by another name, which was pseudotumor cerebri. So mm -hmm. you're thinking, false tumor? Oh, it can't be that bad. But it absolutely can. Yeah. And uh, you, you mentioned multiple medical terms here that I'm not sure everyone understands. So sure. could, could you describe it in terms that everyone like will hopefully understand like how does it affect your is it in your brain or is it yes uh, so essentially it's in that intracranial space where your cerebral spinal fluid is so typically okay. your cerebral spinal fluid acts as a cushion that surrounds the brain mm -hmm. now too little of this you can bleed too much of this that causes a lot of pressure so okay. you're you know thinking about things like blindness, strokes, because when all that pressure builds up, it has nowhere to go. 
And, you know, this, this isn't the only condition with, you know, cerebral spinal pressure, yet it's one of the only conditions that is not regarded as emergent due to all of the stigma that surrounds it. So, you know, you'll, you'll have people that'll have increased pressure from trauma, whether it be from football, from repeated concussions or Mm -hmm. from a car accident. And it's very much treated like the most imperative case in the operating room at the time. But you have someone like me with the exact same condition where there's still that buildup of pressure and someone is very sick. It's very often disregarded. Okay. And is it something that keeps building up or is it that you, you're born with it and, and it, it, like the pressure remains the same? Like it's not Some people are born with it. That's um, more in the hydrocephalus space. Um, you'll see a lot of people with congenitive hydrocephalus. Um, for me, mine was actually caused by something. Now, idiopathic meaning they don't know the cause at the time. And it's really kind of up to you and up to your doctor to try to find out what that root cause is. So obviously you, you want to find what's causing the pressure. You want to find what the catalyst is to everything. And, um, you know, for me, it was a very long journey of trying to figure it out all the while having 10 brain surgeries during the span of seven years. Oh, wow. And when you say brain surgeries, is it very invasive? What type of surgeries? Mine very much were. Um, I had my VP shunt placement, um, which a VP shunt a ventricular peritoneal shunt. So basically you have a valve that is um, in the intracranial space that has a catheter that is actually siphoning the pressure and the CSF down through a catheter underneath the collarbone, goes right into the peritoneum where it can dissolve properly. So that way, it's there's a constant siphon for the CSF. Um, for me, I had that surgery done quite a few times because, unfortunately, shunt valves, there's not exactly uh, been a lot of updates and innovation. And, you know, you, you would expect that there would be, but it's actually one of the most outdated and archaic human use devices currently on the market. And for something that goes in your brain, that's that's pretty puzzling for a lot of people. They don't really understand why there wouldn't be so much research. And, you know, there, there are currently a, a few different um, researchers and organizations working on things for this, but it, it's mostly very invasive. And even one of the, actually three of the surgeries that I've had with this were actually just to diagnose and monitor the pressure. And that was ICP monitoring which is where they actually uh, drill a burr hole into the skull and they actually place a probe-like device that has a catheter that actually measures the CSF and they keep that in for three days. And you basically have to act as normal as possible and go about your day in the hospital. And you know, they, they mainly wanna see positional changes throughout the day and kind of map out when the pressure is at its highest, does it ever you know, go down low? what is going to give us the best picture of how the pressure is acting and sometimes even how the shunt is acting because it's very difficult sometimes to fine tune shunt settings. And, um, you know, it's, it's a very complicated device to get right. Um, but the other two procedures, I'm, I'm probably missing some through, <laughs> but, uh, the other two procedures I had were my cerebral vascular stents, and um, those were when we were first trying to be less invasive. 
that that was probably the least invasive procedure I had during the entirety of all of this. I mean, even just, um, you know, getting a snapshot of the pressure, you know, you're talking about lumbar punctures, which I've had at least, I would say, 60 plus in time that uh, I was diagnosed. And they are very painful, I've heard. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it. Not to mention the the long term damage. I find it so funny because back when I was diagnosed, like they were handing LPs out like they were candy. And nowadays, yeah. you know, you go to the ER and you're like, oh, you know, I really don't feel good. I feel like my pressure is really high. And they're like, well, we don't really want to do an LP. You're like, well, mm-hmm. that's not what you said ten years ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, at least things evolve. <laughs> yes. No, I don't ever want anyone to go through that because. That is purely awful and just not something that you want anyone else in the human race to ever experience. No. How do you go into brain surgery? I would imagine that there's a risk associated to each brain surgery. Uh, How do you feel going into one, if not multiple? So I was probably what I would probably say is like the hospital weirdo. I was that one that was always trying to crack jokes on the way in. <laughs> and, um, it, cause I figure, you know, if my surgical team is laughing and they're in a good mood, maybe they'll do a better job. But, uh, you know, obviously there was a lot of kind of trying to not psych myself out and, uh, just trying to be present and, um, you know, be thankful for the time that I have had. And um, I had a hospital chaplain visit me quite a lot. It was funny because uh, the first time I met him, I kicked him out of my room. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, he ended up becoming a a very dear friend, both to me and my mom, because we we dealt with a lot during the time of me, especially like when I was, you know, really in the thick of getting surgery. Uh, There was actually an instance where I had to have three surgeries back to back. Really? And oh. it was actually around Christmas time. It was really, really difficult for us. And um, basically, I had had a rare cyst develop right next to where my new shunt was. And it had grown like two centimeters overnight, like very rare complication. They were shocked. And um, they knew that since they had already operated twice, operating a third time, really not a good idea. But not really too much choice in that matter i would say that was probably the most difficult and that was one of the only times i did not crack jokes going into a surgery that was the only time because it was a very real moment of you know there's a chance i walk in this room i don't walk out and i think the weirdest and most poetic part of that experience was that i walked to that table the same operating table that I was on for that experience. And I put myself on that table and, um, you know, it was surreal to look back on, but, um, probably one of the, the heavier moments for me, mm-hmm. um, you know, like hugging your parent goodbye and, you know, all that, it was, it was challenging. It was really hard. And, um, you know, it, it was one of the moments that I think changed me as a person going okay. forward. Yeah. Um, you know, I was only what, maybe 23, 24 years old and, you know, it's, it was a very different experience than you, you would ever think of. And, you know, obviously that experience specifically 
was the one that that stayed with me and uh you know it's it's definitely not something easy to have to do and you know i've dealt a lot with anxiety and you know ptsd from all the surgeries i have had done i've had a lot of complications Uh, (laughs) i've had a lot of things go wrong i've had a lot of things go right but um you know it's it's a very challenging thing when you're not always the same person you know when you come out of the hospital as you were when you went in because for me it was like i'd be there for two maybe three months at a time having like all these really really intense surgeries and you know i would go like radio silent on my phone and uh you know you would have people like constantly want to know how are you doing how are you doing and uh you'd just be so burnt out that you just couldn't bring yourself to talk to anyone like i think the only person i would really talk to was my mom and the chaplain (laughs) Which, you know, very, that was also funny for me because that really wasn't something that, you know, you would see me do. I was a little goth kid, you know, (laughs) I was a little rebellious kid. So the fact that I was kind of, you know, leaning on the chaplain through the entire time of all of it, you know, it was a whirlwind for me. But, uh, you know, something I'm really, really glad that I was able to get through and continue to tell my story. Yeah. It must be so hard if you're stuck in hospital for two to three months there's no way out of it in a way like if you're stressed by work you go for a walk and it helps you like look back at it differently in a way and makes you think differently maybe but if you're stuck in hospital you you can't is that how you felt like a bit stuck and not being able to to leave it in one place and and think about something a bit more positive my mom actually made sure i didn't feel stuck okay my mom went out of her way one time specifically it was like i think it was actually before one of my my big surgeries she actually went she bought um some clothing from the hopkins gift store that is very similar to some of the clothing that like the residents wear when they're like trying to get warm and they're cold in the wards and uh so she she brings back this clothes. She's like, I'm breaking you out for a little bit. We're going to go for a walk. And uh, she actually managed to get me out of my room, put me in clothes that were similar enough to the residence to where they couldn't tell it was me. And, uh, you know, she had me running around. And uh, basically she would, you know, bring in gaming consoles. Like my mom is like probably one of the coolest parents ever when it comes to dealing with a really, really terrible condition. And uh, she was always really good about, you know, bringing the light and the positivity in. And, you know, I I did not always make it easy for her. I actually outlawed the word hope for a good, like, year. I didn't let her say it because I felt like it was jinxed. (laughs) Because everyone's like, well, I hope things get better. I get another surgery. And, uh, you know, so she... She would always, uh, you know, buy me a new gaming console every single time something got worse, which, you know, it, it became a blessing and a curse for me. Because I'm like, okay, I'm going to have another surgery, but hey, I'm going to have a Nintendo Switch, so it's all good. <laughs> Something to look forward to. I would, it would be like 3 o'clock in the morning. My surgeons would, like, peek their head in the door. Because, you know, like, all the white coats start swarming around 4 a.m. That's when they start yeah. doing their rounds and getting ready. And uh, especially on, like, the operating floors. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'd be sitting there playing Skyrim. I'm like fighting a dragon, and all of a sudden they peek at me <laughs> and they're like, "What? What are you doing?" <laughs> yeah, that's a way to get ready at your yeah, own. right. Like <laughs> yeah. a dragon in uh, you know fantasy life, <laughs> a dragon in real life. 
<laughs> yeah. Basically. <laughs> um, so IIH, so you don't have a uh, an understanding of why you have this condition, if I understand. So I absolutely do. And uh, like the only reason I still call it idiopathic intracranial hypertension is because I feel like it's so important to talk about the time in my journey when I didn't know what caused it. Okay. Um, it would probably be more considered secondary at this point since it's secondary to another condition. Um, for me, we so there was a point where I kept going to my surgeon saying there there has to be something wrong with my shunt. I'm not getting better. I don't understand what's going on. I'm still going into all the same complications. What gives? And, uh, you know, he's like, we, we need to find whatever the source of the pressure is. If we find the source of the pressure, we can manage the problem. That'll make it easier for your shunt to manage, you know, siphoning off all of the CSF all the time. And the thing is, like, I can also hear my shunt. It sounds like a, you know, a fishing wheel when it's like reeling really? in. Yeah, it's, it's wild. So, like, I, I knew it was working to some extent. But it wasn't working enough for me to at least not have symptoms. And, uh, you know, I started doing some research into auto-inflammatory conditions because I started having all these really just weird symptoms that had nothing to do with anything neurological whatsoever. Okay. And, um, you know, I just started making this list. And for a while, it seemed like maybe it was lupus since I had like a lot of skin involvement, Mm -hmm. but then I had gastrointestinal involvement and then I ended up going to several gastrointestinal doctors. I had one actually misdiagnose me with ulcerative colitis at the time. And, um, you know, after a while, I really started kind of hitting my head up against the wall going like, what, what could this be? Cause then the pathology would look odd or not quite right for whatever condition they were trying to diagnose. And then it wasn't until one of my doctors asked me the silliest question that we figured it out and everything made sense. And she literally looked at me. She's like, you know, I remember this one really crazy disease from my residency. I got to ask, do you get oral ulcers? Now, I was a kid that had braces all my life. So oral ulcers, like to me, that was just not a big deal. That wasn't something you told people. But of course, the answer was yes. And uh, we we keep kind of going through some of the qualifying questions. And, you know, she knew that I had issues with um, episcleritis with my eyes and, you know, where they would get, you know, the broken blood vessels and be really painful and everything else. And she's like, you know, this is really starting to sound like Bichette's disease. She's like, it's a very, very rare variable vessel vasculitis every single blood vessel every single structure is inflamed with the amount of pain you're in with the bleeding you're having with everything else it just makes a lot of sense so we start doing more research and there's a very clear relationship between IIH and Bichette's and it existed in several different medical journals to a point where I'm like I can't ignore this anymore I take it to my neurosurgeon, he concurs, and then I find a specialist at NYU. And uh, my doctor looked like, my doctor at NYU took a look at me for all of 10 seconds, looked at my hands, looked at my face, and he was like, yep, this is Bichette's. I'm going to write you a prescription and 
here we go. And I was like, why was this so easy? Everything else was so hard. Like, <laughs> this makes no sense. Why Why was I able to just walk in here after seven years of looking for this thing? And then you diagnose me in like not even 10 minutes. And it was like that bittersweetness because, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled that I know the problem. But then I'm frustrated because it really, really sucks. And I'm just like, what, what do I do with this? Like, this is actually a really terrible thing to have. Like, now I need to worry about aneurysms and all these other things for the rest of my life. And I already have something in my brain. Yeah. So it was just really complicated to to try to deal with. And, you know, the fact that now we're dealing with something that not only is an auto-inflammatory condition, but it has a neurological edge to it. And that's when, you know, it, it really started to get concerning. And the frustration of taking so long as well, like you said, seven years. And you, this, you mentioned a misdiagnosis. How do you realize that you've been misdiagnosed? Because you, you trust doctors to, to get it right. And I know like they, they can't always get it right, but still getting a diagnosis that then you learn is not the right one. How, how do you make that connection? Well, uh, first, my mom, her favorite thing to say is there's a reason why it's called a practice. They're yes. all still practicing. Very true. And, and, you know, like doctors are just as human and fallible as the rest of us. So it's mm -hmm. like I, I feel bad in the situations where people expect doctors to be these infallible gods that never make mistakes and don't double check anything. Yeah. Because that's that's not a knock to, to doctors at all. It, it's a really hard job. I can't imagine having that kind of responsibility. It's not something I would ever want. Yeah. You know, like that that is a lot of responsibility to have. And, you know, it, it must be insanely difficult, mm -hmm. um, you know. But for me, I think it, it came to a point where they would do colonoscopies, they would diagnose me, and then the pathology would come back and they'd be like, this doesn't match the profile of ulcerative colitis. Mm -hmm. I think the worst misdiagnosis I had at all, though, was in the very, very beginning of the journey when instead of being initially diagnosed with IIH because it was such a rare condition, they had never seen it before, they misdiagnosed mm -hmm. me with MS because it ran in my family. And mm. they gave me steroids, which is the worst thing you can possibly do with someone who has increased pressure intracranially, because that automatically increases the pressure tenfold. Okay. And I had a stroke. And then they had to fly me to another hospital to fix the problem. So it's like in, in the space of what we're dealing with, misdiagnosis can be I mean, critical yeah. in that case. So it was a it wasn't the first time it happened. It was very frustrating because like at first when I got diagnosed with ulcerative colitis, I was like, oh, my God, like I finally have an answer. And this actually has meds. This has biologics. I can fix this. So I was so frustrated when all of a sudden I get hit with Bichette's disease. It's complicated. Yeah. There's all these other things because pretty much every single one of my conditions contraindicates each other in terms of the treatments that you would use. So that it, that's what makes it so difficult, because on top of that, then we're dealing with Parkinson's as a result of all the brain surgery I've had, which, um, you know, my mom told me in the very beginning when I first got my shunt place, she's like, you know, Levi, uh, I'm really not comfortable with this. Like, I know you need to you need to do it, but it only takes one surgery 
to open that window for Parkinson's. And you really need to think about that. It only takes one. And I had 10. So it's like I, I knew that there was a really good chance that I would go down that road. I was hoping I wouldn't, but I knew there was a good chance. And when I started getting the tremors, um, it, it actually felt like my own personal earthquake at first, like, and my doctors were calling it anxiety for the longest time. But then I finally started getting the, the full limb tremors. And, um, and it's still very difficult to get doctors to acknowledge it being both, you know, female and young. So it's like, unless you're, you're Michael J. Fox, they don't really give you the time of day when, when it comes to that. But uh, it, it can be very difficult because when you're looking at biologics, it's really hard to find a biologic that won't exacerbate those symptoms and make them worse. Uh, okay. So it's like you're, you're kind of playing a really bad game of would you rather and trying to decide what to treat and what's more important. Yeah. So are you medicated at the moment because you mentioned i think bichette's that you could go into treatment but then that there may be some contradiction with your other conditions so i am currently on like a baby version of a biologic which is otesla and uh, like that's kind of the the starting point the jumping off point really and um for a while i was supposed to get in to see this brilliant, um, you know, neurobichette's specialist, because it's really important that if I'm going to get a biologic, that's who I need to see. Because if I pick the wrong biologic, with it being neurological, it can have disastrously effects if mm-hmm. I pick the wrong one. So for a while, that was held up in limbo due to the fact that I was on Medicare and Medicaid, and the only guy that does this very specific condition as is at NYU. So I had to wait until, and I actually had to come off of disability, work full time, get private insurance just so I could see this guy. Really? And I finally, finally have an appointment. Yeah. And that was after like a good like year and a half of being diagnosed and just kind of being on the Otesla and, and they're, there's already a point where the Otesla is no longer working. So I've basically been dealing with like full blown Bichette's flares for like about, okay. I would say a good six months, maybe eight months, mm-hmm. just waiting to get in to see this guy. And his office felt so bad. They were like, oh, I wish you would have told us that you were dealing with, you know, the Medicare and the Medicaid. We would have tried to, you know, find a way around it. And I was like, oh, man, I wish I would have known because, you know, hospital financial departments are not, always the most inviting you know no. they're, they're not really going to be the ones to hold your hand and get you the appointment that you need they're the ones that just say mm, that's the wrong insurance you're in the wrong place sorry because <laughs> like, yeah. i was from new jersey you know like i i was from another state and you know the medicaid programs you you can't go to another state with that medicaid program it will not pay for it that's just the way it works and uh you know so it was really really hard to get in to see anybody Wow. And you, so is it right that Bechet's is a rare disease? Yes, very rare. Very rare, but still you, there is treatment to address the symptoms, is that right? There is, but due to the fact that Bechet's is more of a micropopulation disease, there is not as much research into it as there should be. 
Um, there's a lot of organizations that are doing really great work to try to improve innovation and, um, you know, to, to get more researchers interested in developing drugs for this. Um, but it's, it's still very much a challenge. You know, you're, you're kind of working off of biologics that are already on the market for other auto-inflammatory okay. conditions, which yeah. sometimes work, but when you're dealing with something where, you know, it's a more complex case, you know, like, like mine with having something neurological on top, it's definitely not one size fits all. Mm-hmm. And that's the hard thing with biologics. You know, it's, it's very personal to the patient of, you know, what are they contraindicated to take? Like, are, are they going to be okay to be on this one specific thing? Yeah. And you mentioned flares earlier. What are those flares like? Well, they've definitely, uh, I would say evolved over okay. over the past year um for me it's probably more skin involvement than anything um to where my face will look like it's covered in you know second degree burns but it's not burns at all it's just patches from the condition itself and okay. a lot of lesions that look like cystic acne but aren't it's it's very very painful mm-hmm. and it's like lesions all over the body and ulcerations in the mouth, anywhere. And, um, you know, just a lot of pain, being tired. Um, There will be, you know, neurological symptoms as well since it is affecting me that way. So my pressure Mm -hmm. will shoot up. You know, I I basically just kind of need to stay in bed. (laughs) Can't really, you know, get up too much. Um, It definitely influences my vision as well. It's actually interesting. Bichette's is the... It's one of the leading causes of blindness, believe it or not, in Japan. Really? Wow. And uh, it's interesting to me because I'm not actually sure if my vision problems came from IIH or Bichette. So it's kind of like who came first, the chicken or the egg? Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, you know, which one is going to actually make me blind and how do we prevent that from happening? So is it something that could happen then? So I'm actually considered legally blind right now, um, just from all of the damage and everything that I have had happen with my optic nerves. Um, IIH is known for causing inflammation, papilledema in the optic nerves. So you get a lot of uh, you know, nerve swelling. You'll actually see mm-hmm. people that'll get a optic nerve sheath fenestration. That was something they thought about doing with me, but there's a uh, permanent risk of blindness that comes with that. And I was not about to take that bet. I, I was losing bets left and right. Wasn't about to take that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get that. Um, so how do you, do you manage to have a working life then? How, how does that yeah, happen? so it, funny enough, I... Um, started dabbling into patient advocacy before all of this i was a firefighter emt like that was the bread and butter of my life i mm-hmm. loved everything about it i miss it every day mm-hmm. i literally went through the fire academy and then i got sick <laughs> like i didn't even get to do anything too cool like it's like come on <laughs> like <laughs> like i could have been so cool but uh you know i i ended up getting involved in patient advocacy because i wanted to find like a different way to help out because yeah. it just felt like that was what I was meant to do. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I fell in love with an organization called Patients Rising. And uh, I kept, you know, tugging on my my now supervisor's sleeve every single day. I was like, come on, Jim, just just give me a job. Just, mm-hmm. just give me a chance. 
I'll do a really good job, I promise. But, you know, here's me who has no college degree. I just want to point, like, put that out there. I yeah. was sick while everybody else was going to college. So, uh, you know, there was absolutely nothing that I felt that I had to offer in terms of my resume. Like I had done some volunteer work um, with Seth Rotberg, who you've had on before at our yes. Odyssey. Yeah. He taught me everything that I know about nonprofits. And if it was not for him, I probably would not have been able to kind of impress people enough to sort of start dabbling in in that world. Um, but eventually I was hired to work for the patient helpline for Patients Rising. And I, every single day, speak to patients just like me and help them navigate the healthcare system. Wow, that's very good. Like such a great organization. Yeah, it, it, it's a really, really cool thing. And uh, the, the team that we have that works on this helpline, it's um, me and my coworker, Samantha, um, my supervisor, Jim, and our tech guy, Joe. And, uh, you know, like the, the four of us, we, we have like this, this really amazing synergy when it comes to how we work together. And uh, they're, they're just great people that I just love getting to work with every single day. And uh, the fact that we're giving a free service that is helping people in a way that is such an unmet need in the community yeah. Yeah. is really like, that's one of the things that honestly keeps me going is knowing like all these experiences that I've had, like good and bad, they're going to help someone down yeah. the line. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, and I guess for you, it must be so nice also to be able to, to help other people to give back and, like what you mentioned earlier about insurance, that's something you, unfortunately, a lot of the times have to learn the hard way. So oh, yeah. you can help in that respect as well. I mean, b between that and just, there are so many things I know just from my time of being an EMT and things that I learned from my mom, who was a nurse at the time, you know, that we know from that profession that a lot of, you know, average everyday people that are not in that profession don't know. Like there are so yeah. many different life hacks to how do I get in to see my doctor faster? How do I expedite this? You know, what's, what's the best practice to get the prior authorization to go just a little bit faster when I really need to get my medicine or that mm -hmm. MRI. And, you know, it, it's things that are second nature to us, but maybe they're not to someone else. So it's like, I don't want to keep all that knowledge to myself i'd rather you know make sure that everyone has access to this and you know they can utilize these little medical life hacks in their own life yeah and i've heard a lot of uh, guests on the podcast say that you have to advocate for yourself yeah. but not everyone has this strength in them to to do so and, and I, I guess for some people like doctors can be like you take what they say as granted and and that's it. Then you stop there, but sometimes you need to go further than that. Well, that's why that's one of the bits of advice I always give is you have to trust yourself. You really mm -hmm. need to trust your gut. Like I, I, I've had people where they're like, oh, I don't know if I should go to the hospital. It's like, if you're asking yourself whether or not you need to go to the hospital, go <laughs> yeah. like you need to trust your gut. Like if you're really questioning yourself that much, I want you to take that same question you're asking yourself 
And I want you to think about if a friend, if your best friend, if your mom, if your dad, or, you know, anyone that you really care about was asking you the exact same thing, what would you tell them? Mm -hmm. And then follow your own advice. Yeah. Because nine times out of 10, you're right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a very good point. So where are you in your journey then with the three conditions? So it's, it's almost, I don't want to say I'm in like this sort of like limbo purgatory phase, but it, it kind of feels like it at times where, you know, I know all the things I have, I know what I need to do to fix it. I'm just sort of waiting to get everything fixed. Like currently right now, uh, you know, it's, it's very up in the air as to whether or not my shunt is working. Um, shunts have an average shelf life of around five to 10 years. It used to be 15 to 20. They have recently discovered that that is wrong. <laughs> and, uh, you know, a lot of us that are shunted are like, oh man, why couldn't you figure this out sooner? <laughs> like, come on. But, um, you know, like I said, I've always been able to hear my shunt. And uh, recently I haven't been able to. So uh, that's been a little terrifying for me. You know, you would think that most people be like, oh, it must be so annoying to hear that thing all the time. It's like, no, that was peace of mind. That yeah. was, you know, I'm good. Everything's working the way it needs to work. I don't need to worry about anything. But uh, now every time I don't hear it, that silence is deafening. I, I say the silence is louder, honestly, in my opinion. Um, so it's like, am I waiting for another brain surgery? Or are we cooking up number 11? Like, I'd prefer not to do that. I, I would really much prefer to, you know, stay in my apartment, in, enjoy working, and, uh, you know, not have to do another brain surgery. Because, I mean, that that's probably going to end up, you know, having, because Lord knows, I don't know how to take a day off to save my life. Sam tells me every single day I need to stop. But literally, I'd probably bring my computer with me and work in the hospital. That would be me. That would absolutely be me. Like, if anyone's talking to me on the helpline, you can absolutely bet I am either in my room, like, laid up with my laptop, like, doing the exact same thing that you are, or I'm in the hospital (laughs) writing on my laptop and uh, hoping Jim and Sam don't catch me so they uh, take my Zendesk access away. But there's always more video games to discover as well, I guess. That is true. That honestly, I'm not going to lie. Video games, people can make fun of me all they want for this, but that has been my saving grace. Yeah. Um, that and honestly, like my boyfriend, Darian, who was the first person who helped me fix my accessibility settings on all my games so they were actually playable. Because when we first met, which we met online playing, you know, Destiny 2, which we, we love playing. And he made this joke. Now, this is a stranger I've never met. He's like, he's like, man, he's like, he's like, man, Levi, he's like, you're really bad. He's like, are you blind or something? And of course, I start laughing like a hyena because <laughs> I'm like, actually, I am. And he's like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and he's like, can I can I fix your accessibility settings so you don't have to be bad at the game anymore? and uh the funny thing is like uh he was the captain for his collegiate esports team so he's like really really good like he's actually like incredibly talented that was Mm -hmm. a factor of us dating honestly um but after he fixed my accessibility settings then i became good and i was like you know what (laughs) this is pretty great and uh it became our every single day and uh it actually improved my hand-eye coordination and improved my mobility in my hands and it really? made my tremors kind of decrease a little bit 
Wow. Because then I'm using my hands all the time. And it's also, yeah. it's, you know, stimulating me neurologically. It's, you know, forcing me to actually use my eyes instead of letting them atrophy. Mm-hmm. So it's, it was really, really good for me. And, you know, it's, it's good for your self-esteem. It's good to, you know, blow off steam. It's good for your mental yeah. health and, um, you know, getting to play a game with other people, socialize. Like I was definitely not social before I started getting into gaming. I was that weird gamer that didn't want to, you know, talk to, I was, I was like, I'll only get single player games. Yeah. <laughs> so like dabbling into that like multiplayer space where you actually have to like make friends with people and talk to people. Cause I was that weird hospital kid that was like trapped in the hospital all the time. Didn't know how to be human. Like you, yeah. you actually forget how to socialize because you're, you're going through something that so few people can understand that you just feel like you can't relate. Like I felt like an alien at dinner parties. I felt so weird because, uh, you know, here I am walking around with like all this hardware in my brain and, uh, you know, I would just feel like I didn't fit in. So just having a space where no one had to look at me and notice anything. Like for instance, like if I had surgery, they would shave like a good, like half of my hair off. I'd have like staples the whole bit. So I didn't really want to go out in public. You know, like I I did it one time because my mom was like, you need to go out and get some sun. You're getting too pale, which as you can see, I'm still very much. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously I didn't take that advice, but um, I went out like one time and a little kid cried when she looked at me and I was like, I'm never doing this again. (laughs) Like I'm never doing this again. This is not something I want to do. Um, So being able to be in a space where I could socialize without, worrying that i would be judged mm-hmm. you know for anything other than me being bad at the game and then having it be fixed <laughs> that was that was good yeah. um but it's it's something that i can't recommend getting into enough and it's, you know my mom being the one who would always buy me the new gaming consoles uh you know all parents out there buy your kids gaming consoles when they're sick they love it yeah it's interesting because like th- there's a a stigma about gaming that like it, you're not socializing mm-hmm. that you should go out you should go and see people and and you're telling a completely different story so it's very good oh to yeah hear, i mean when you have apps like discord for instance where you can just go hang out with your friends and in, in like a channel and you can like stream movies together you can do all kinds of stuff i know my coworkers are gonna laugh at me because i've been trying to get like a like a company discord going for a while they think i own stock in discord for all about it <laughs> <laughs> but no it, it's gaming is probably the most social thing in the world like i mean i have had more fun online gaming with my friends than I ever have just, you know, going out and trying to like, I don't know, like bowl or something. Terrible at that. I, I threw a bowling ball into a roof one time by accident. That was bad <laughs> to like the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> that was with bumpers too. That's not good. <laughs> uh, right. Well, I've got one last question because before sure. we finish uh, today, um, which is a question I love asking everyone. Uh, what's your happy place somewhere where you feel at peace? My happy place is actually where I just moved to in, uh, in Pennsylvania. And I, uh, moved to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania to be with, uh, my boyfriend. And, uh, 
my happy place really is here in this apartment um, next to my favorite person playing our favorite games um, collecting our Pokemon cards and being overgrown children and just refusing to get old we just have the best time together and I love just being here and I never thought I'd have my own space like I never thought I'd have my own apartment because when I first started out in all of this I was like you know I'm probably gonna have to have caregivers I'm probably gonna have to live in like a skilled nursing facility and an apartment was like a pipe dream and I have one now and that's just the coolest thing in the world so uh this yeah this is my happy place Oh, that's amazing. And it sounds like you've been through extremely challenging times. So knowing that you're now in a place that you call your happy place is amazing. Thank you. Well, Levi, thank you so much for taking the time for sharing with the community for the work you're doing, helping patients every day. That's that's incredible. Thank you uh, so much. It's been a, an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. So thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you for this show, what you do and, you know, educating people, spreading awareness. That is one of the most important things in the world. The patient story is everything. Thank you for giving people a space to share it.